I'm Kwame Alexander, and this is a podcast based on a memoir that I wrote. I thought I was writing it as a father. Turns out I was writing it more as a son. It's not a traditional memoir where I gather together all the things that have made a life out of me. It's a collection of snapshots of a man learning to love again, of remembering the ways that I've loved and wanting to share everything I've learned about this thing called love, which as it turns out is not a whole lot, with my two daughters. This podcast is a poet grappling with loss and longing. With questions he's been too afraid to answer. So I have gathered together some fathers, some sons, some lovers, some husbands, some friends of mine to share their stories. And today's guest is the father of two girls and an adopted boy. He lives in Chicago with his family where he shares office space with the laundry room. He's written some pretty stellar, very long, but engaging books about Muhammad Ali. And most recently, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. In fact, he gave me a copy right after New Year's Day in Key West. It's called King, A Life. And it is an eye-opening, it's eloquent, compassionate, and brilliant. And wow, my friend, those are all the words I would use to describe you. (laughs) Jonathan Eig is my guest on Why Fathers Cry, the podcast. Let's get it. Let's get it, Kwame. Let's get it. Let's get it. <laughs> How you doing, John? I'm good. Do people call you John or Jonathan yeah, or what? Everybody but my wife calls me John. Um, my wife oh, really? calls me Jonathan because her brother's also Jonathan. So um, that's the uh, way it goes. But I can I can go with either one. But most people call me John. So my name is Edward Curtis Kwame Alexander. My dad called me Jim. Most of my childhood life, and I still don't know why. Huh. Like, I don't know that something triggered in me when you said that, and I just got to remember to ask him why he called me Jim. It may be a literary reference. Wow, you got to find out. I can't believe you don't know that. Yet. I know. Get off the podcast <laughs> with me right now and get to work. Come on. So, we last saw each other in Key West. I was there promoting a book called An American Story, and you were on vacation, as it were. We were in Judy Bloom's bookstore, Books and Books. Right. And you gave me an advanced copy of King, A Life. You got the first signed copy in the world. My parents got second. Wow. You just happened to be there at the right time. It's not that I love you more than my parents. Hey, you know, I find it extremely fascinating and profoundly like you you were really bold in your approach to this book, man. I mean, because you chose not to follow the path of many amazing biographers and historians before you who primarily wrote about Dr. King's public life. You chose to write about the personal Martin, the personal Michael King. Like you chose to write about the father, the son, the lover, the husband. Why that approach? Because the civil rights hero had been done and done very well by, you know, people we know, Claiborne Carson and uh, David Garrow and Taylor Branch. But the intimate story, the, the life, the man, 
had not been done. And one of the things that happened to King over the years is that we've turned him into a monument and a national holiday, all of which he deserves, but we've lost sight of him as a man, as a son, as a father. And oh my God, the father-son relationship there was just mind-blowing. I could do a whole book, and some people might say that my early chapters are long enough that they are a whole book. I could do a whole book just on the father-son dynamic between Martin Luther King Sr. and Martin Luther King Jr. I could not get enough of that relationship. And we couldn't either. I mean, as a, as a reader of it, I thought it was really unique and original that, you know, in this first hundred pages of the book that I'm reading, you're really talking about his father and the relationship that, you know, he and his, he and he and his father had and the impact and the influence that his father had on his life. And it's almost like it's a dual biography. And I'm curious why you chose to talk so much about his relationship with his dad. Well, you can't understand King as a human being until you know where he comes from, until you know what his mother and father uh, did to make him turn out the way he did. And that's especially true for a black man in America coming up in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, you know, King was born in 29. How did he get the courage to do what he did? You know, Morehouse played a tremendous role, all credit due there, but it doesn't happen without his parents. And, um, I just think Daddy King is and, – and just the fact that he wanted to be known as Daddy King. Right. When, when Junior supplanted Senior as the man, um, he said, well, I, I'll go – I'll one-up you. I'll just call me Daddy King. Um, that's <laughs> that's saying a lot. But Daddy King ought to be – like there ought to be operas written about Daddy King. This is a guy who um, is born into a, an abusive family. His father is is, is a raging, um, you know, deeply sad man, alcoholic, violent. And, and Daddy King escapes from, from the, the sharecropping life in, in, uh, Stockbridge, Georgia, just basically walks out of Stockbridge, um, to, to Atlanta. At what age, Jonathan? At age 12. At age 12, he walks out of the house. He walks out and, um, finds a job in Atlanta, um, uh, uh working for a railroad company, pretends he's older because he's a big, burly kid and, um, he still goes back to help his family in Stockbridge. He still goes back to help on the farm. Um, he's still practicing preaching because he wants to be a preacher, even though he can barely read. But he, he's the one who really branches off and decides that he's going to do something better with his life. And to do that as a, as a black teenager in, in the rural Georgia at that time, to move to Atlanta and say, I'm going to be a preacher and I'm going to elevate myself and elevate my family. I mean, he's a hero. And, and the fact that, um, Martin Luther King Jr. would emerge from such a bold, brave, smart man is no surprise once you, once you start looking at the pieces there. So much of what we learn as men, as you mentioned, on how to love and how to live comes from our parents, our observations, the, the experiences. And so much of it comes through our fathers. We begin each podcast with a poem. This is called Portrait of Newlyweds, 1967. And it's, an, it's a poem I wrote from an image I saw, a black and white photograph of my parents in 1967 in the summer. They were visiting my mother's aunt and uncle on the south side. And they took a picture together on the front stoop. And they were sitting like at least 10, 11, 12 inches apart. They weren't touching. And I always found that to be quite telling. I didn't know anything about the moment, 
but this is what I wrote. West Side Chicago, sitting on Uncle Robert's front porch, boxwoods and thick evergreen shrubs on either side. In the middle of the night and the six-day war, he decided to drive through the night in the brand new green Ford Fairlane 500 with no air conditioning, only stopping once at a truck stop for gas and cashews and a quick nap because it is a 13-hour drive from West 122nd in Amsterdam. She is smiling politely. He looks amused, his head tilted like he's just made a wisecrack. Black tube socks pulled nearly to his knees. His high water khakis are wrinkled like he pulled them out of a hamper. Her hair is primped, nails polished like she is headed to a ball. They are not a year married. I am 12 months away and I notice everything, especially the way they aren't holding hands and are sitting three feet apart, a world of trouble between them, as if earlier they'd had an argument about an old girlfriend who called him, and he said she was talking stupid, so she refused to iron his pants. My mom refused to iron his pants and stormed out of the guest room. And then after breakfast, right before her husband left to deliver the day's mail, Aunt Ethel asked if she could take a picture of the newlyweds. So here they sit on the top step, like two perfectly pruned plants in early summer, posing for love. Wow. Posing for love. Yeah, I mean, I don't know anything about that moment, but that picture has always resonated with me, and I, that's what came out. Can I tell you what that poem made me think about? What's that? At first, it made me think, "Why? Well, I hope they, I hope they pulled it together. Like, I hope they, I hope they worked <laughs> it out. Whatever troubles they were having in that at that moment in their in their marriage." But then I th- also thought, "All you've got is this picture, Kwame. Um, you don't know what happened before or after." And I deal with this a lot. I, you know, we have one picture that captures a moment, and we don't know what other pictures were missing. So we put all our weight on that picture, and. Um, I wonder, you know, how fair that is sometimes, because as a historian, as a writer, and you can relate to this too, you, you tend to make a lot of those pictures that you've got, and there's a bias there because that's the picture you've got. So I just wondered how you think about that, how you think about what was going on between your parents, um, because you've now <laughs> given this picture even more weight by putting it on the cover of your book and talking about it on this podcast. So um, I wonder if your parents are feeling like they don't even remember that moment. So you're trying to say that the reason they're sitting apart could have been because there was a bug and my mom didn't want to sit on the bug or, <laughs> or right. some water was there, a puddle of water or something. Yeah, that's right. It could be. Um, that's the thing. We don't, we don't know. And it reminded me, too, of another porch photo. Um, there's a photo of King um, right after his home is bombed on the porch of their house in Montgomery. This is 1956. And he's surrounded by all of these white city officials who've come there um, to investigate the police chief and the mayor. And there's a crowd of black people from the neighborhood around the porch, but we can't see them in the photo. All we see is Dr. King with his wide-brimmed fedora because it's the 1950s and people are still wearing those. Um, they wear them now too, Jonathan, actually. <laughs> but they didn't in like the 60s. We don't see King in hats <laughs> right. anymore uh, after, you know, the, after King, after Kennedy's elected, basically, um, when hats went out of style. But anyway, um, I digress. The point I'm trying to make is that we have this picture of King on the porch, and he looks 
brave and in control and these these white officials standing behind him are counting on him to keep the peace. What we don't see is the next day when Daddy King shows up on that porch, rings the bell and says, you're coming with me back to Atlanta. This protest thing is over. You're not the leader of any movement anymore. You're coming home. This is too dangerous. Oh, wow. And it's a seminal moment in King's life that we don't really talk about. We talk about how he had the courage to to continue leading the bus boycott, but we don't talk about how he had the courage to say no to his father. Uh, we're staying here. Right, right. You know, that it's these seminal moments that we reflect on, that we remember, that we discover, that we recover in our imaginations about what happened when we were children. What did we see? What did we hear? What did we learn from our parents who raised us? And how has that impacted our decision making as parents, as husbands? And so you were born right around the time of this picture. And I'm curious, what do you remember about your parents being in love, Jonathan, about their marriage? Well, you know, some of these things are shaped by the photos that we remember because we rely on the photos for our memories, as as we've already pointed out. Right. And um, my dad was always taking pictures of my mom. My dad was kind of an amateur photographer. And um, these pictures, you could just see the love in the in the photos. But what I remember most from my childhood, from, you know, um, my earliest memories are having both of my parents home all the time and how unusual that was. And my dad working from the kitchen table, um, he built himself a little office in the basement, but he never used it because he didn't like being down there by himself. He preferred to be in the kit at the kitchen table with his adding machine. He was a, an accountant, uh, mostly preparing taxes and stuff and doing the monthly books for little businesses in our neighborhood. Um, you know, the stationary shop and the deli and the bike repair shop. Um, so he was home all the time. And my mom was home all the time too. So, um, I remember them being together all the time and, and I remember them just stopping and hugging each other in the kitchen. So I have really fond, loving memories and I, I just always feel like they're unusual. Like none of my other friends had both parents home all day. A lot of them had their moms home all day, but I'm pretty sure I was the only kid in the neighborhood who had his dad home all day. And that, that was a, a hassle <laughs> a lot of the time. But looking back on it, I, I, I appreciate it. Like, you know, he was at every, Little League game, every basketball game, every school concert, every band concert and school play, you know, and that's, that was unusual for my, for my, among my peers. I mean, you're the oldest child in your family. How do you think that influenced or what role do you think that played in terms of your desire to become a father yourself? I always knew I wanted to be a dad. You know, I wanted, a, you know, at least a couple of kids. There's no question in my mind about that. And I think it comes from just, you know, having a pretty happy uh, family life and seeing my parents getting along so well and getting along nicely with my brothers. My two brothers were all just like two years apart. So we, we had a great relationship, great time growing up together. And I just thought that was the most important thing. You know, that's the other thing. My dad always put a family ahead of work. I mean, he literally quit his job on the day I was born because they told him he had to come into the office. And and that just sent such a message. And I think my parents have always, especially my dad, have always enforced that message that like work, money, they're okay, but family is what matters. And my dad is still that way. He's 80, he'll be 85 next month. And he's still that way. Like he's, he just wants to spend all his time with his grandkids. That's like, that's the thing that makes him happy. So your dad was an accountant, did, you know, the books for several local businesses. My dad 
one of his many entrepreneurial endeavors was he ran a book publishing company. And I remember as a child working for his company, the office was in their bedroom. They had an IBM computer. I think the, the software was Ventura. We were designing book covers. We used to like lick envelopes, put stamps on them for catalogs to go out. But I also remember my dad going to the post office every day to check for checks for money because it was like day to day. Am I going to get paid from this vendor or is this order going to come in for this book? And we're going to be able to pay for a tennis racket because I want to play tennis or are we going to have three cartons of Tropicana orange juice or are we going to be able to afford just one of five alive? Like it was a day to day struggle. And I'm wondering as an entrepreneur, you know, in your home was, was, did you experience that kind of struggle and how did you see it? Five Alive, definitely. <laughs> I definitely can relate to the Five Alive. We were an off-brand family. Um, and, um, and it, yeah, it's real. Like, um, my dad never made much money. Like I said, he was, he was, entrepreneurs putting it generously, you know, and I can remember, um, times when, when, you know, he, he the, the income was irregular. It was depending on, on how much, you know, what time of year it was and how many clients he had that, at that time. And, um, it's it's interesting to see your dad every day working at the table and and hear him on the phone um you know to see that much of it and when you're a kid you know I took it for granted but I, yeah like you I used to help out I would put the checks in order you know he'd be doing the books uh, the ledgers for one of the um businesses that he was doing their their taxes for balancing their their checkbook and I would put the checks in order for him because they they'd have a pile of checks this this high from the bank and they would be all out of order so um the, my, me and my brothers would would sit on the floor and just put the checks in in numerical order. So it was weird to see him working and also to see very clearly that he didn't like it. He didn't like his job. He felt no passion for it. Um, he had to really work hard to put enough, you know, to, to put enough food on the table. Like it was, it was not fun. And I think it made me uh, really think about what I wanted to do and, and do something, how important it was to find something you liked. We will be right back. One of my favorite things about being a father has been sharing my love for books with my daughters. And it started before they were even knee-high to a duck. Discovering stories to read to them and with them, teaching them how to read, listening to them do so on their own, it's pure magic, y'all. When I wrote my first children's book, Acoustic Rooster's Barnyard Band, I knew I wanted a publisher who shared my vision in bringing meaningful stories to young readers. And that is exactly why I've been partners with Sleeping Bear Press for nearly 15 years. Sleeping Bear is deeply committed to their mission of providing books that engage, entertain, and educate from beginning readers to young adults, covering just about every subject you can imagine. Head to sleepingbearpress.com or follow them on Instagram at Sleeping Bear Press to learn more about their incredible award-winning selection of unforgettable stories that provide children with the opportunity to explore the world. I remember my father having the kind of relationship with my mom where I don't have a recollection of him holding her hand. I don't remember them hugging in the kitchen. And they worked from home. Um, 
like my mom taught and she was a principal, but there were times when they were both at home, like your parents. But I don't, I don't remember them having that sort of, you know, um, that romantic, that passionate connection. I do remember when we lived in Brooklyn Saturday nights, they would watch Saturday Night Live together and they would share a can of mellow yellow. Like <laughs> that was sweet. their, that was the thing I remember, you know? Yeah. And so I've tried to make sure that in my relationships, like I go, I go the opposite way. I love you. Like my dad never said, I love you. I love you. I'm holding hands. I like to hug. I like to kiss. Like how did you sort of being able to see this, this loving couple as it were, I'm sure they had arguments and what have you, but how did that impact you in your 20 plus year marriage? How long have you been married? Uh, yeah, 26 years now, 26 years. What do you think you gleaned or learned or applied? I think like you, maybe for the opposite reason, I learned that you got it, that I just, I just love to show my affection and I'm a, I'm a puppy dog in that way. Like I love to, I, I say, I love you to my daughters every day when they're walking out the door to school. I, I look for hugs. The teenagers don't really like that right, right now, but they I'm looking don't for it. At all. <laughs> it's killing me. It's like, oh, I miss those days when they would cuddle on the couch. But, um, maybe they, they, as they tell me now, I just need to get a puppy. Um, but, um, you know, my parents were so affectionate and I really view that as a, a great gift that they gave me. Um, you know, and, um, and I, whether my kids like it or not, that's the way I am. And, and I think that at some point they'll, they'll come back around to appreciating it. You've got three kids, you've got two daughters and you've got an adopted son. And I want to know how that came to be. I'll give you the long version or the short version of that story. I want the medium version. Okay. I'll give you the medium version. Jeffrey, uh, only his mother and I called him Jeffrey. Everyone else calls him Jeff. Um, but um, I moved to Chicago in 1995. A friend of mine uh, was leaving town and asked me if I would take over for him in the Big Brother program with this kid who was seven years old, um, single mom, no other family. And reluctantly, I agreed to uh, be the big brother for this kid. Why do you say reluctantly? Because I'd been a big brother twice before <laughs> oh. and I knew how much work it took. It's not something that uh, I took lightly. And I had the first time I did it, I loved it. The kid and I you know, are friends to this day. Um, I became a big part of his family. Uh, they took me in as much as I took him in. And the second time it was a disaster. The kid was just already too troubled. And, um, and it, it was not nothing I could do really, even though I tried. And I just knew that the third, you know, if I did this again the third time, I was gonna, I was going to be committing to a, you know, a, a lot of time and energy and and emotion that goes into it. And um, and it and I and it did. It was a big commitment. I saw this kid pretty much every week, uh, Jeffrey, for, you know, seven years um, from age seven to fourteen, and then at age fourteen, his mom passed away, totally unexpectedly, and he had no other family, no place else to go. Um, so we took him in, uh, my wife and I. Uh, so he came and lived with us from age 14 to age 19, basically, and then got his own apartment and stayed in our lives. We see him. I talk to him every day, even now, um, but um, became a big part of our lives, our, my daughter's lives. My daughters just, you know, couldn't really explain to their friends why they had a brother who was, um, you know, 12, 13 years older than them, but um, and who looked totally different. But um didn't matter. Looked totally different how? Well, he's half black, half white. His mom was white. His dad was black. Got it. And he's just a giant. 
Uh, we're small people. He's, he's a big person. And, um, you know, the, the, the kids, my, when, especially when my kids were little, they would, they tell, tell their kindergarten friends that they had a, you know, an 18 year old brother and then the, they wouldn't believe him. And then Jeffrey would show up on the playground to pick them up from school. And here comes this big muscular guy. And they're like, Oh, your big brother's a superhero. <laughs> they, they, so the kids, uh, and I say to the, so Jeffrey's mom, um, was just a saint and, and raised him, you know, not only single handedly, but through, you know, just dire, dire poverty, um, moving, you know, running from the landlord, searching for jobs, sometimes on the brink of homelessness. And when she died, I mean, Jeffrey lost his best friend and his protector. And I say to this day that the thing that saved his life is not me and my wife taking him in. What saved his life is that we had a one-year-old girl who crawled up in his lap every day and went, crawled into his bed to wake him in the morning. And that no matter how angry he was at the world, he couldn't be angry at this little baby sister. And... um and they today have this amazing relationship. She's 19 now and he's 32. Wow. Um, so yeah, we've been through a lot and he's one of my, you know, I went from being his friend to being his father and he calls me dad now. Um, and now we're back to being friends and you know, it's, uh, it's incredible. I'm, it's one of the great blessings in my life. It must've been tough when it, when he first came to live with you at 14 like there must have been some some challenging, like real heavy trials. And I'm wondering what what were some of those? What was that like? Were, were there moments where you were like, I'm way in over my head on this. I don't I want to be a dad, but I'm not sure I can do this with this scenario. Yeah. I mean, it was like throwing a bomb into uh, into the house because everything blew up. My wife and I had, you know, thought we had a pretty stable relationship with a with a one-year-old baby and things were crazy enough just dealing with that. And then you throw a, you know, an angry, um, depressed, very, uh, large 14 <laughs> year old into the mix. And he's just, um, and I, and I go from being his friend from being his, you know, once a week buddy, you know, shooting baskets and playing catch to being his, his, his father figure. You know, I don't feel like I'm his father yet. I feel like I'm his disciplinarian. I'm the one who has to get him through this. And it's hard. You're the guardian. Yeah. Guardian's a really good word for it. Like I have to guard this kid from, from himself and from the world at large. And, you know, he's at the age where he's going to be going out and trying things and getting in trouble. And I know that. And I have to keep him in school. I have to keep him from like losing it. And it was really hard. And I had no idea what I was doing. And I felt bad because our friendship basically disappeared. And we went from being pals. It, it was hard for me even just to summon. I can remember this vividly, like hearing him outside. He loved baseball and he would just throw the ball um, against the brick wall in our alley for hours. Whack, whack, whack. I mean, hard. I mean, I think I thought the brick wall was going to fall down. And I kept saying, I should go out there. I should go out there and offer him to play catch. I should, I should go out there and, and throw it with him. But I was so angry and we weren't getting along so well that I just Many times I couldn't summon the courage to just go out there and offer to have a catch with them. And not all the time. I did sometimes, but we were, it was hard, especially those early years. Um, and I was, I felt terrible about it because, you know, I, I, I took, I love this kid and I took him under my wing, but I, when it got harder, it got harder. Um, and we would sometimes argue, you know, I had to ground him. We had to ground him, my wife and I, a lot, but I would be the one, you know, Going basically, you know, chest to chest with him, you know, 
yelling sometimes, you know, you're not, you're not going out. I know I'm not your dad, but you, but you still have to do what I say. It was hard because I didn't know if he really did have to do what I said. I'm not sure I believe that. Right, right. We do it enough because we think we're supposed to do it and and eventually our hearts will follow and we'll, we'll, we'll believe it. We'll begin to believe it. I got to think that, you know, I want to make this assumption. I want you to tell me if I'm right. Your dad loved being a father. Absolutely. Even if he didn't necessarily love his job. 100%. And you seem like you love, you knew you wanted to be a dad and you love being a father. You love being a father so much that you took on a whole nother kid from a whole nother side of town, from a whole nother community and you set out to become his dad or you set out to, to be, to, to try to become a father to him. I think I set out to become a help to him in the beginning. And then I had no choice. I was, you know, faced with this moment of, cho- well, there was a choice. There was a choice. Um, I was faced with this moment of crisis and I decided I had to become it. I could, I thought I could become a dad to him. Yeah. When you talk to your wife about it, like, was this a tough, like, some tough convincing it took or was it just like a, Oh, we got to do this. It's no, you know, it's, it's a fate of complete. We're going to make this happen. What was that like? I just think it's somewhere in between. I think we felt like we really don't have much choice here. Like we can't let this kid slip away and it's not ideal. Um, it's not certainly not what we planned, but we have to do it. And it's kind of like your picture of your parents, right? We look back on it. And say, oh, it was it was the greatest moment, greatest decision we ever made other than like having kids of our own. But this was more of a conscious choice. This was more of an unplanned um, serendipitous choice. And look what it did for our family. But at the time, um, it wasn't so clear cut and we didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know if it was going to work out well. And I said this to Jeff, Jeffrey used to say to me all the time, you should write a book about me someday. Uh, you said this in the moment, like when, when he was a teenager, when he was still living here. And I would say, I'll, not until you prove it's a happy ending, uh, you know, because I felt like it was very much up in the air. Could go either way. One of the last things I want to share with you is, you know, because this is all about a journey. I'm, this podcast is me having conversations and interviewing some, you know, wonderful people, friends writers, artists, entrepreneurs about, about their experiences in fatherhood and about all the things, all the matters of the heart, because it's a way for me to sort of figure, figure me out. Like I'm on this journey, you know? And, and, and so I, you know, re- remember just one more snapshot. I remember flunking out of college sophomore year and at, when you flunked out they gave you an opportunity to appeal oh you're gonna be okay oh, we're, I'm gonna do better here's here's where I made the mistake I'll buckle down I'm ready and you can appeal and come right back if you if your appeal doesn't work then you have to stay out a year and you go back a year later so I'm at home I gotta tell my parents I flunked out and 
My mom is just devastated. And she's like, we're going to appeal. Let's prepare our appeal. My dad's like, uh, no, let him stay out of school. He's, he's done. Let him stay out of school and feel what this is like. My mom was like, no, Al. She called him Al. No, Al, don't, don't let him, don't know. We got He's got to stay in college. And she, she and I went up to, to college and filed the appeal and I lost. And he was like, yeah, go get a job. This was an eye-opening experience for me. Changed the course of my life. Having to sit out that year while all my friends are at college. And I'm working at a, as a waiter at Bennigan's restaurant. <laughs> I learned that day. That was, a, that was a pivotal moment in my life that I learned as a, as a son. And I try to, I try to, that, that's, that's tough love. I try to impart that a lot as a father of two girls. It's a little bit tougher because it's the male female dynamic and it's the daddy daughter. Yeah. It's hard. But you, my friend, have a son. And I'm wondering if you ever had an experience as a father with your son where you had to show that kind of tough love. And let me hold on. Let me back up. I'm not when I say it's tougher as a as a fa- as a daddy and a, and a daughter. That's just my perspective. It's hard to have really, really tough love on my daughters. I try to be disciplinarian, but I just find it challenging and difficult. But as a father of a son, tell me something. Yeah. I don't know if I could have done this with my daughters and and maybe it's because they're, I don't know. I don't think I could have been this tough with my daughters, but number one, when Jeffrey graduated from high school, uh, he had no summer job. I said, you're not living here. If you don't have a summer job, you're not going to be sitting here on the couch all summer long. Get out if you don't find a job. So he got out, found a construction job, and lived with a buddy for the summer. Um, I don't think I could have done that with my daughters. And then when I taught him to drive, I said, you get a DUI, I'm not coming to get you from jail. You told him that? Yeah. And freshman year of college, he got a DUI. And he was uh, called me from the police station, said, "We got your, we got your kid here. I said, you can keep him. I'll come get him tomorrow. I let him spend the night there. And that was, I don't think I could have done that with my girls. I have to be honest with you. Wow. What'd your wife say about this? She had my back on it, you know? Um, oh, wow. Was that a transformative moment for him? Do you think? Oh yeah. Uh, I don't know if it was just the police scared him enough. I don't know if he needed me to scare him anymore. Mm. Um, and then having to go through, um, through the court system and uh, do all of his, um, community service and all that. Um, I am confident that it's never, never happened again and never will. But I don't know that I, that it was, that it was me that scared him. I think it was the, the entirety of the situation that scared him. So there's going to be a, um, in about 20 years or so, your son's going to be on a podcast <laughs> and he's going to be talking about a picture he has of the two of you all walking out of a police station. <laughs> <laughs> And there's just going to be a whole, like his kid or his grandkids going to see that picture and they're going to create a whole world from it. And really at the end of the day, you don't know what the context is. You don't know what, what, what each party was feeling. You don't know what was happening in that moment. But what you do know is that all of it happened from a space of love, that all of it came from this desire to create and nurture beautiful human beings. And 
I guess what I've learned, because I try to learn something from each podcast, is that our parents loved us. They loved us hard in the ways that they could. We learn from them. We take from them what we can, what we remember. We try to apply it to our own lives. And we show grace. Because I'm sure your son was pissed. He was pissed that you didn't come get him. (laughs) In that moment, you know? Yeah, but he's still talking to me. So I guess it's okay. And he's still alive. But he's still talking to you. And he's still alive. And that's the beauty of it. We're still here. And I love him. I do. He knows that. Yeah. I think that's the other thing I was going to say about the way my dad... um, you never doubted. You never doubted. Even when he was mad at you, you never doubted that he loved you. And I hope I've done the same thing with my kids. What are your kids' names? Lillian, Lola, and Jeffrey. Lillian, Lola, and Jeffrey. And mine are Nandi and Samaya. And we love our jobs as fathers. We try to get better at it every day. I like to say I'm not a grown man. I'm a growing man, Jonathan. Yeah. I like that. Jonathan Eig is my guest today on Why Fathers Cried, the podcast. This has been a great conversation. Thank you for the stories. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for being open. Thank you for inspiring us in what it means to love what we do as fathers. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks, Kwame. You're making me cry a little now. This is Why Fathers Cried, the podcast, and I'm Kwame Alexander. Until next time, people. Why Fathers Cry is a Big C Entertainment production. Hosted by Kwame Alexander. Produced by Sarah Grace McCandless. Studio audio engineering by Edgar Diaz. Post-production by Jeremy Brisky at Burst Marketing. Theme music, St. State Street, composed by Joshua Gabriel and Bryant Terry. Learn more at whyfatherscry.com. Special thanks to our guests, our sponsors, and to you for listening wherever you get your podcast. We appreciate you.